Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This time, after months of standoff and the pullback that never was, a massive military assault as Russia invades Ukraine. He changed his mind. He had a couple of options on the table, and now he used one of them. We'll assess the military situation right now and the risks this could spread beyond Ukraine. The plan that we're seeing could be the biggest war in Europe since 1945, in, just in terms of sheer scale. Also, has President Putin recycled an old invasion plan? And after Western sanctions, could Moscow hit back at Europe? It's somewhere between sort of 35-40% of the EU's gas comes, comes from Russia. For months, Vladimir Putin insisted he had no intention of invading Ukraine as he moved two-thirds of his land forces to the country's borders. Now, all the Western warnings, the Ukrainian appeals for calm heads and the Russian denials are history. Sirens woke residents in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, as an all-out invasion of Ukraine was launched in the darkest hours of the night. As it began to unfold, President Putin warned others not to interfere. I decided to conduct a special military operation. Its goal is the protection of the people who, for eight years, suffered from abuse and genocide from the Kiev regime. And so, months of crisis have now been tipped over the edge and plunged into conflict. I'm assuming that Putin's intention now is to go all the way through to dislodging the government in Ukraine, uh, replacing it with a puppet government pro-Russian to achieve his aim of a vassal state on his border. Uh, that has implications for countries around the world. Um, we know that the West are ready to put further sanctions on Russia. They've got to be as tough as possible. We'll hear more from former UK National Security Advisor Lord Ricketts on the UK's options to help Ukraine. And Natia Saskuria will be explaining how President Putin's playbook is repeating itself. Similar methods have been applied to Georgia, as Russia sees both Ukraine and Georgia as tools being used against Moscow by the United States. This sort of thinking uh, dates back to early 2000s and the 2008 war, as well as the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the current tensions. But first, let's assess the military situation right now with Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Michael, as you and I speak, it's only a few hours since the invasion began. How clear is it what Russian forces have gone into Ukraine and from where? Well, um, it looks as if Mr. Putin has um, gone for broke. We were wondering up until last night whether the forces based around Ukraine were really to frighten everybody while things went on in the southeast. Because, I mean, Western military analysts have said if we were going to invade Ukraine, we'd, we'd use more forces than this. But it looks as if he's going for broke. And it is this uh, multi-pronged invasion. So there's forces certainly crossed from Belarus, which I assume are going to Kiev. There's forces moving towards um, Kyiv, and there have been some explosions around Kyiv. Um, there are certainly fighting going on in the Donbass, and there seems to be a push into Odessa from an amphibious invasion. I mean, a friend of mine in Odessa just a couple of hours ago sent me a message that there have been explosions uh, around Odessa. So it looks as if this is a, is a multi-pronged push into all the main centres, because Kiev, Kyiv, and Odessa are the three main cities. And if they are surrounded 
and effectively occupied within the next, whatever, couple of days, then we'll see what uh, the Russians intend to do. But it, it is also clear, it wasn't clear until about seven o'clock this morning, our time, that there was some fighting back going on. It does appear that there has been some activity in the air, some anti-aircraft defences have been deployed, and certainly some fighting is taking place, certainly in the southeast and quite likely um, down in the southwest uh, around Odessa. The single thing I think to remember about this, or the single thing I take away from it, is that the Ukrainians appear to be fighting back and some of their best units are down in the southeast. So the idea that the, the Mr. Putin may have had that the Ukrainians would just effectively collapse is probably not being borne out. An all-out assault then from several directions. You've spoken on the programme before, but it's worth reminding people what the balance between the military power of Ukraine's forces and what Russia had massed. Yes, uh, I mean, it's, it's in the nature of two to one. Um, the Ukrainians have got an active force of about 125,000, 130,000 troops, although they've also, they, they claim um, reserves of 900,000, which are, is true on paper. Of those 900,000, about 300,000 have got recent combat experience. So you could say, yes, they've got a fairly big reserve force. And they've got these territorial units. There's a, a brigade in every region. There are 25 regions, so there are 25 brigades. And these are the people who are, we see on the news, you know, as we're trying to get some drill with rifles, some with wooden rifles to get the hang of it and so on. Whether they'll make any difference or not, we'll see. Probably not strategically, certainly not in the short term. So the Ukrainians are not without ability, for sure. But the Russians have moved in, it now seems, at least 190,000 troops. So they're getting something like a two-to-one superiority. In the air, they've got, a, they've got about a two-to-one superiority. And at sea, it, it doesn't really matter because um, the Ukrainians have got virtually nothing in the way of sea power. They've got some coastal defences, which won't make a lot of difference. And the Russians have got a big task force in the Black Sea and now in the Sea of Azov. The Russians have got complete sea control. They've got more or less two to one in the air, two to one on the ground. And of course, in the air, even though the Ukrainians have got a reasonable, reasonable air defence system, it will be taken down quite quickly, probably. And the Russians will be able to flood the air with electronic warfare capacities. And so they'll be able to black out or make very difficult uh, what any of the Ukrainian forces are trying to do on the ground. So what happens now? Well, that lies largely in the hands of Vladimir Putin. And so the UN Secretary General issued this appeal directly to Russia's president. In the name of humanity, bring your troops back to Russia. In the name of humanity, do not allow to start in Europe what could be the worst war since the beginning of the century. The UK and its allies had already imposed some financial sanctions on Russia a few days earlier after Moscow's declaration that rebel-held areas Donetsk and Luhansk were independent republics. The UK and its allies said much tougher restrictions were being kept in reserve. Those will now be applied. UK Foreign Office Minister James Cleverly says they will deliver a further barrage that they've been waiting in reserve. Vladimir Putin has used disinformation, he's used lies, he's used false flag activities to justify the unjustifiable, which is an invasion uh, of Ukraine. The UK will, in close alignment with our international partners, 
uh, bring forward an unprecedented level of sanctions to punish this aggression. But we have been told throughout this crisis, Britain and NATO will not intervene militarily in Ukraine. Is that really still completely off the table? Former National Security Advisor Lord Ricketts again. I mean, NATO has always been very careful not to get involved frontally in a conflict involving first the Soviet Union during the Cold War uh, and then um, Russia. Um, the point of NATO is to deter conflict. Uh, any conflict involving Russia and NATO would have massive implications straight away. So I think it is right to be honest that NATO is not prepared for, doesn't have plans for or infrastructure for war in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, and that, I think, is, you know, that sets a limit on what help um, NATO can give Ukraine. I think Ukrainians understand that very well. We can give them a lot of support short of outright commitment of NATO forces in Ukraine. There is a difference between being a member of NATO um, and being a close partner of NATO, as Ukraine is. Uh, and that's really how that difference operates. But, for example, the UK and, and, and other NATO nations intervened militarily in Libya, not a member. Yes, but Libya is a very different country um, and NATO there was intervening to prevent Gaddafi from a bloodbath of uh, his own civilians, the rebels in the east of Libya. Um, and you know, in Bosnia and Kosovo, we intervened uh, on humanitarian grounds to prevent um, ethnic cleansing uh, and very rapidly reduced to a peacekeeping role. So I don't think there's any comparison and there's no comparison really um, for NATO putting in forces to a country which is involved already in an active war with Russia. There might well be a big humanitarian need in Ukraine very soon, mightn't there? And we should be prepared to help meet that, absolutely. Uh, and I'm sure that planning is going on for that. There might be large refugee flows. There might indeed be a humanitarian crisis. Whether we can actually deploy people into Ukraine to deal with a humanitarian crisis will depend on the military situation on the ground. But yes, I'm sure the West needs to be prepared to help Ukraine on that front. The government's emergency committee, COBRA, has been deployed to hold talks on this. You've been in those meetings. If you were national security advisor right now and someone came up with a suggestion of sending in special forces to Ukraine, what would have been your advice to the prime minister? Uh, I would have been against that idea. I mean, special forces have a unique capability but it is best deployed, uh, I think, in areas which is not a first world military power um, in, for example, counter-terrorism work or hostage rescue work to deploy small groups of special forces into a war zone which might involve a direct conflict with very, very capable Russian forces, I think would be very dangerous indeed. Former UK National Security Advisor Lord Ricketts, Michael Clark. I mean, Russia was claiming uh, in, in recent weeks that UK special forces had been deployed to Ukraine. Uh, we should take that claim with a pinch of salt. But do you think there is any chance that UK special forces might be used and might be of use to Ukraine? Well, yes, the Russians um, accuse Britain of having special forces in Ukraine. And I think it's entirely plausible that we did of course the government won't either confirm or deny um, but it's entirely plausible that to help with planning and also to to do some reconnaissance I mean special forces are not there most most people think special forces are to run around doing James Bond things but they're not they're there they're special because they can exist in almost any environment and they just act as eyes and ears they just look at they, they just check on what they see they report they listen 
and they can slip in and slip out. That's what that's what makes them special. Um, I think it's entirely plausible that they may have been there and they may still be there because that's one of the advantages we can offer to the Ukrainians in a practical sense. And also remember, we've had um, River Joint Aircraft, the EC-135, at least one RAF River Joint Aircraft has been operating over Ukrainian airspace, presumably from either 51 or 54 Squadron, who are based at Waddington, um, because we've seen the tracks of them. You know, these things can be commercially tracked, and we can see the tracks of, a, uh, of an RAF aircraft flying up and down the uh, Belarusian-Ukrainian border on the Ukrainian side, and of course that will have been with Ukraine's express approval. Listening, that's what EC-135s do, the river joint system, They're basically listening to the chatter, just picking up, trawling through everything that, that they hear on their radios and electronic systems. So we've already been doing that, and I dare say we're not doing it now because that is closed airspace and it may be dangerous. But I know that there's an awful lot of NATO aircraft in the air doing an awful lot of listening all the way around the borders of Ukraine as far as that they can access them. The day before the invasion began, the UK government said it was sending more military aid, both tactical weapons and non-lethal aid. Is there any hope of getting that in now? Very difficult. Um, it's very hard to get things into a war zone um, if there is active fighting. It doesn't mean to say that the routes are blocked, but there's also a problem of, I mean, what are you going to send that will make a difference when troops are fully occupied, they're fully committed, um, as we're down, you know, offloading a lot of new stuff? Um, the question then arises, well, you know, who can put it together and who can get it to the front? And do the people at the front know how to use it? Uh, do they need a bit of special uh, time with it? I mean, one thing you can send is extra ammunition. And if we're talking about uh, extra missiles for launchers, that sort of thing, we're talking about more of the um, the N-laws that we sent, the, uh, the new um, uh, light anti-tank weapons. I mean, we sent 2,000. If we were to send another 1,000, um, they would be, you know, as it were, gratefully received. But, you know, getting it in and getting it to the people who need it all, all of a sudden becomes much more difficult once fighting has begun. Well, one of the other things that the UK and allies have been doing in the lead up to this is reinforcing NATO members in Eastern Europe, like Poland, Estonia and Romania. General Sir Richard Shiroff, NATO's former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander, says more of that reinforcement is now needed. Absolutely, there is a possibility that we as a nation will be at war with Russia. Because if Russia puts one bootstep across NATO territory, we are all at war with Russia, every single member of the NATO alliance. We should mobilize our forces such as we've got. Our governments now should be really examining carefully what needs to be done to reinforce and to send a most, the most powerful signal possible uh, that NATO is ready and willing to defend its territory. Michael Clark, how real is the risk that this will not be contained in Ukraine, that it will cross into NATO territory and draw NATO and us in? I think there are two sorts of risk. Um, one is that it is it becomes contagious in the region, and what the, the place we're looking at is Moldova next door, Moldova, which is ethnically Romanian, really, used to be a province of the old Romania. And within Moldova is Transnistria, which is a, an area of self-declared Russian separatists, just like the Donbass, down the Dniester River. And the, the self-declared Republic of Transnistria used to be the base of the, uh, I think it was the Red, the 14th Army, the, of the Red Army, have, have asked for unification with Russia. 
And um, if Putin uh, feels that he's succeeding in Ukraine, it would be awfully tempting to create a similar situation in Transnistria and then walk into Moldova. And I've seen a fair bit of, Russia, uh, of Romanian commentary recently to say, if Ukraine is conquered, Moldova will, will be next. We'll see. That's one problem, that, that there may be some spillover geographically to the next door state, which is extremely weak, Europe's poorest state. The other problem is up in the Baltics, because, um, again, depending on how aggressive Mr. Putin is or how much he may want to distract attention from whatever is happening in Ukraine, we can't ignore the fact that in Estonia and Latvia, there are significant Russian minorities, always have been, um, which the Russians use to ferment a lot of disinformation. And in Lithuania, where there isn't a, a high Russian minority, a significant one, there is nevertheless the outpost of Kaliningrad, which is Russian territory, which sits on the other side of Lithuania, separate from Russia. So the three Baltic states have all got their own problems. Now, the point is that all three Baltic states are in NATO, so they get the full 22-carat Article 5 guarantee and the Western world and NATO has been pretty clear that by by the deployments and our own deployment to Estonia, that we're serious about Article 5 when it comes to the three Baltic states. But I suspect that if this crisis keeps going and gets bigger politically, that that's where the next pressure point might be. And NATO may find itself having to reestablish its red line in those three states. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. Russia provides military assistance to rebels fighting in two regions of a former Soviet state. It then declares those regions independent and sends in Russian troops as peacekeepers, while the rest of the world calls it an invasion. This happened 14 years ago in Georgia. I was actually very young uh, at that point in 2008 when uh, Russia invaded Georgia and uh, this was a shocking event for everyone in Georgia because nobody really, uh, despite the fact that Russia has been preparing for this military offensive, it was still a very shocking event and uh, this has been a very tough and very dramatic experience personally for me and uh, for the entire Georgian population. Natia Saskuria spoke to me from the Georgian capital, Tbilisi. She's worked for Georgia's Ministry of Defence and its National Security Council. And she's an associate fellow at the London defence think tank, RUSI. There are definitely a lot of similarities when it comes to 2008 war and the strategy and tools that Russia has used and what we see now in Ukraine. Of course, from a strategic point of view, Ukraine is uh, much more important for Russia. Hence, the stakes this time, I think, are much higher. But I think a lot of methods uh, that have been tested 14 years ago against Georgia are being used now. President Putin made an incredibly alarming speech that included twisted uh, history lessons about Ukraine. Similar methods have been applied to Georgia. Just like in Georgia, there are increased disinformation campaigns right now portraying Ukraine as an aggressor. Uh, we also have seen that Putin has used the claims of genocide Identical accusations were also made in 2008 uh, when the Kremlin blamed Tbilisi uh, for committing ethnic cleansing. So the Russian playbook on this so far looks almost like a carbon copy in Ukraine. Just remind us how it played out in Georgia, because the fighting was over in a matter of days, really. 
Yes, and in terms of, um, I mean, uh, the, the 2008 war is known as a five-day war, but it, it is actually much more complicated than that, because what we see now uh, is that even in Georgia, even though the Georgian conflict is no longer, unfortunately, part of the uh, of the Western political agenda, and we don't hear much about uh, the ongoing tensions, ongoing conflict in Georgia, uh, Russia is still pushing its borderization policy. And by that, I mean the creeping occupation of Georgian territories. So uh, the uh, 2008 war hasn't finished in August 2008. Uh, it is a prolonged conflict. So do you believe in Ukraine right now, in the, in the short term, it will play out effectively the same way that it did in Georgia, a few days of fighting and, and, and then seemingly a, a, another frozen war? I hope not. Uh, I hope a similar scenario uh, won't take place in Ukraine. And there are major differences uh, in terms of how uh, West has approached these tensions. In the past, for example, Russia has not received an adequate response to its aggression in Georgia, in Ukraine, and despite the sanctions that have been applied on Russia, still, I think this uh, was not enough, and we see the result of this. Even if Russia gets what it wants uh, in Ukraine, I don't see that the Kremlin, uh, Putin's regime, will stop at Ukraine. Natia Saskuria, Associate Fellow at the Defence Think Tank RUSI. Now, for weeks, as the crisis has grown around Ukraine, it has highlighted Europe's dependence on Russia for its energy. About 40% of the EU's gas comes from Russia, while the UK's dependence is much smaller at about 3%. The market price of gas is global, so Europe's energy security affects Britain too. Even before the invasion, Germany suspended the approval process for the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was meant to flow double flows of gas to Germany from Russia. But could Moscow hit back in all this by cutting supplies? Is it time for Europe to rethink its energy security without Russia involved? And is that even possible? Questions I've put to Mike Forward from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, along with the most immediate conundrum. Can Europe cope without Nord Stream 2? In a nutshell, yes. Um, it's, it's not operating at the moment. It, it, it's packed with gas ready to ready to operate, but it's not been approved. And they've, they've got the Nord Stream 1, there's a pipeline runs through Belarus and Poland called the Yamal Europe line. Then there's the um, routes through Ukraine into Slovakia, Hungary, Romania and, and into Poland. So those routes can supply all that uh, Europe needs. It's not that we need Nord Stream 2, but the uh, Russia's using it to basically divert flows away from Ukraine and potentially from the Belarus-Poland route. Well, I was going to say, if we don't need it, why why is it being done? Well, it's it, it's pretty much largely political, is that Russia doesn't want to be reliant on, on what we call transit countries, i.e. Ukraine, Belarus and Poland, when it can directly connect from the St. Petersburg area directly into Germany. But fundamentally, this crisis over Ukraine has raised big questions about Europe's reliance on Russian gas, hasn't it? If, the, if Europe wanted to significantly cut its reliance on Russian gas supplies, how would it do that? And, and how long does that manoeuvre take? It can't happen overnight, and it would take years, if, if, not, if not decades, really, to 
to reduce its reliance. Um, I mean, it's anticipated with, with decarbonisation, the energy transition, obviously demand for gas in Europe, especially in the 2030s, uh, is expected to start falling. Um, so the reliance on Russia for energy would, would become less. But the, yeah, we're talking about yeah, maybe the 2040s before that uh, you, could, you could possibly, even in a rapid decarbonisation uh, process, do without Russian gas at all. The, 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 there's limited amounts we can do, uh, it's certainly in the short to medium term. If Russia wanted to, to hurt Europe, could it just turn off the gas tap? Well, operationally it could, but uh, I mean, Russia's always prided itself, with actually with a lot of justification, on being a reliable supplier uh, of gas to Europe. It's always honoured its contracts, absent one or two issues with with Ukraine back in the in the mid two thousands. So it's it's very very prides its reputation on supplying gas under, to its contracts. So, but there can be other priorities, can't they? I mean, Donald Trump was saying a few years ago. If you look at it, Germany is a captive of Russia because they supply. They get rid of their coal plants. They get rid of their nuclear. They're getting so much of the oil and gas from Russia. Could that be seen as accurate? No, it's not. It's. Um, I mean, it, it's been a mutually beneficial relationship. I mean, Russia relies on Europe. Uh, buying its gas basically to fund a lot of its budget. Cutting off the supply of fossil fuels basically to Europe is, it could withstand the, the pain in terms of lost revenues for a while because of the, the high price, it's benefited from high prices recently. But that, that, that would soon, soon, soon go away and the, the economy would be in real trouble. Given what has happened over the last few months and weeks and days around Ukraine, do you think this is going to prompt a fundamental shift in European thinking on, on the future of its energy security? Uh, I think it, it, it probably will, because I think the, um, you know, it obviously is vulnerable to, 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 to supply and needs to diversify its supply, both in terms of you know, possibly more renewables, that, that takes time, but also reverse, diversify its sources of, uh, of gas supply in particular. Mike Fullwood from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Let's return to Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, we know that, that conflicts spook financial markets. Is, is the biggest impact on the UK and the rest of Europe likely to be in our pockets and our wallets? It certainly will be in the short term, yes. Um, uh, I think the, the energy crisis that we're seeing now will be ramped up. Uh, stock markets are certainly noticing and they've, they've all taken a tumble um, that will increase the volatility in the global economy having said that uh, Russia is not a major part of the global economy and if there are strong sanctions against Russia although that will that will disrupt certain sectors in certain countries and our own financial sector if we're serious about sanctions in Britain because we're not serious about them at the moment quite honestly but if we are then there will be some hits in some areas but in general Russia is a country that can't really affect the world economy except in the matter of energy. And the energy markets these days, as Mike Fullwood was saying, are very complex. There's lots of players in them. So it's not as if this was 20 or 30 years ago where countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran or uh, Russia could have a huge effect on energy. But they certainly will have a short-term effect. Let's then return to where we started on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, I said what happens next is largely in the hands of President Putin. 
how do you think this is going to play out now? Well, uh, his forces will be in the short term successful. Um, what that quite means, we don't know yet. I suppose then the choice he will have to make is whether to, as it were, overthrow the government, install a puppet regime and effectively be seen to withdraw or whether he can't afford to do that and ends up having to keep his forces in the country and risk operating effectively, probably, a very nasty guerrilla war. Do you know, one of the most um, chilling things I saw in the last 36 hours was units of the uh, uh, Rosgvardia. And the Rosgvardia are the National Guard and they um, operate custody. They're to round people up. And there were a lot of prison vans or, or military style prison vans in convoy waiting to go in. Uh, British and American intelligence have said, and they've been right about everything so far, but they have said that the Russians have got lists of people that will be rounded up and we can expect these people probably just to disappear. And so one of the things that is most chilling about this is that if there is a, an easy, quick victory, then we might see a phase that I would call the Gestapo phase of Russian behaviour before Mr Putin makes his next move. Michael Clark, thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you to all of our guests. That is it for this week. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. We will no doubt be talking again about Ukraine for many weeks to come. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening. Goodbye.